collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system. And each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome to a new episode of Collective Power. We are on a new theme, right? Theme is the child welfare system. I'm really pleased to have as our guest today a friend and a person who's really dear to me. Luanda, good morning. Good morning, everyone. So Luanda has a really uh, peculiar experience because she had her children removed and placed into foster care some years ago. And they've been returned to you since. So I'm really happy that we're at least talking to you in a place where the family is reunited. You're here because I know you to be like really powerful in your experience and really open in your ability to share it, which I don't take for granted because for a lot of mothers, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And I'm Dr. Rita Fuhrer, your host. So Luanda, tell us a little bit about yourself as a human being, like DHS aside, right? Just tell us a little bit like, what do you like? I want people to get the sparkly sense of you that I have. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Luanda. I'm a lifelong resident of Philadelphia. I'm a proud single parent of three. I live and work in Philadelphia. I am passionate about staying in today. Uh, we can't do anything about the past and tomorrow's not here. So there's no sense in worrying about it, really staying present in today and making the most out of today. My three children are Robert, age 30, Sally, 21, and Jake, 15. All of this unfolded 13 years ago when my middle child was seven years old. Thank you, Londa. So the goal of Collective Power as a show is to have an opportunity to see the system as a whole. Because most people know their perspective, right? And they don't know the perspective of other people. In my experience, having like written a book on this, right? It's not published yet, but having written a book on this and having talked with over 100 people in the past 20 years, right? My experience is that everyone's frustrated in some way, right? Most people are frustrated and dissatisfied, and no one would kind of say the system really works, whether you work agree. in it or whether you're a parent, I have yet to meet someone who says, I've had a fabulous experience. I think the system works. I mean, works well at supporting the health of children and families. Now, it tries its best, people on the inside would say, uh, and people on the outside will have different opinions, which we'll talk about in a second. But the goal of collective power and looking at the system of a whole is really looking at like one perspective at a time each week. And then the last week, I'll bring you together with the other guests that we have next week and the week after that to build this kind of bigger picture. 
So for today, we're just going to dive deep into like what your personal experience is and the perspective on the system that your personal experience offers. Knowing it is one experience and it's profoundly wise for the experience you have because you have the personal experience that I perhaps don't have. I for sure don't have. So we're just going to dive into your experience as kind of like everything that it exposes for itself and fully acknowledging that it's one perspective, right? Could you share with us kind of like the story of how they were taken? Like, you know, what happened there? Well, to clarify, only one of my children was taken. I had my older son that had some mental health challenges and DHS entered our life at a time when I really needed help and they offered their resources and I was happy to take their resources. And you called them? Did you ask well, for resources? Actually, or? no. There was a family member who regrettably filed a false claim of abuse against someone that was in my home. Hmm. And when they came out to investigate, they found that claim was unfounded, but they saw my son who was acting out. And I explained to them, well, he was in residential placement. He was prematurely discharged. And, you know, he's really falling apart now. So they offered to put services in place. Hmm. So they offered us a case manager, a TSS worker, and other supports, which I was very appreciative to have. Despite these things being in place, my son did not get better, and eventually it became necessary to put him back into placement. And DHS, again, offered to help with that, but they left out the part about we're going to adjudicate him to us. Did not know what that term meant. I was assigned an attorney, didn't understand why I needed one, because at this point I trusted them, and they had an attorney, and we went before a judge, and I really didn't understand, and my lawyer didn't explain, why do we have to do this? We all agree that he should go back into placement. Adjudication means you sign over your rights to your child. And DHS now has them. Yep. So the state is now the formal parent of the, like the state has custody of your child. And so you didn't no understand one, that. Not even my own lawyer explained that to me. Mm. Had I had known that accepting their help was giving them up to the state, I would not have done it. So your understanding was that you were just getting help for your child that was having some mental health challenges. Like yes. that was your understanding. That was my goal. That was my understanding. So he went through a series of placements, things going on in those placements that are horrifying. And this is the part we don't hear about. And he was allowed to come home for a visit and made up in his mind he wasn't going back. Just for the common listener, by placement, you mean like a foster home? He was in a residential treatment facility. It means like a a group home, a, a group, group home, home okay. that included schooling that was away from home. And they allowed him to come home for a visit and he refused to go back. Now, I didn't know until really years and years later, the depth of what was going on mm. and why he was so desperate not to go back. If again, hindsight is twenty twenty. If I knew then what I knew now, I never would have accepted them putting him back into placement. So when he went AWOL, they decided, and then he went AWOL and they refused to help me get him back into placement. 
at this point, I'm trying to get him back because I don't know what's going on. I don't know the abuse that he was suffering at the hands of the people that were paid to care for him. So I'm trying to get him back in. And DHS at this point, they're kind of, quote unquote, mad at me. And they're falsifying information to say, mom went to court and she forced a visit that we were against. Not true. We were all on the same page that he should be allowed to come home. But they painted it as it was me forcing it. So I was the cause of him going AWOL. And they kind of turned their attentions to my other two children that they had never bothered with in the past. So there's a term in DHS, right? You haven't said it, but I'm going to add it in for a second. That's like non-compliant, right? Basically, whether you're following the directions or not following the directions. So here you are, a mom who's genuinely concerned about your child, right? So your child goes in care and you're doing what you think is best for your child because you know your child, right? Right. And suddenly on their radar, you go from compliant to non-compliant. Right. Absolutely. And that's a turning point is what I hear you saying. And that's the turning point at which they start saying, oh, well, she's non-compliant. We need to look at the care of the other two kids. Yes. I never quite looked at it that way, but that's exactly what it was. I went from being compliant in their eyes to non-compliant. And they used that very child against me to go after the other two, because now all of a sudden your home is unsafe because he's in it. And you've allowed him in it. But wait a minute. I asked you, I begged you to get him back into his residential placement and you refused. So now you're making it my fault. You're Mm -hmm. saying I'm putting my other two children at risk because he's in the home. It's like they talk with forked tongues. We're not going to help you get him back into placement. But at the same time, he's a danger. If he was really a danger, wouldn't it be in your best interest to get him back into placement? It just all goes to show it was a lie. Mm. He wasn't a danger to his younger brother or sister. He loved his younger brother or sister. There was no danger there. I have one more question. Mm -hmm. So he went AWOL, which meant he left the treatment facility. Absent without leave. Do you know why he ran away? He would tell me years later that he witnessed a lot of emotional, verbal, and physical abuse at the hands of the people whose jobs it was to care for him. Mm -hmm. And he witnessed a lot of his fellow classmates be brutally beaten and abused by the very people who was getting paid by DHS and by the state to have these homes. It's a lot of money being made in this system. It's a lot of money being funneled to these various places. And he made the decision, even though in talking to a, a roommate, He said, man, you probably don't want to do this because they may go after your mom. He would tell me this years later, but in his mind, he thought it wouldn't be that bad. My mom's a strong person and she hasn't done anything. It's not going to be that bad. He could not have envisioned his Mm -hmm. sister being dragged out of the home because of him. So he's like, you know, my mom's innocent. So what can they do to her? Exactly. So... They enlisted the aid of someone. It was um, my daughter's father, an ex, and they went to him. I, to this day, I don't know what they said to this man, but they convinced him that your daughter is in danger with her mom because of her brother, who, by the way, he had known my son since the age of six, and he knew him not to be a danger. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know what the DHS worker said to him because to this day, he's never told me. He pretends not to remember, but he made it clear that if they were to take her, he would be available to come to her aid. So DHS worker goes to his apartment. That's a one bedroom apartment that he shares with his wife and another woman and her adult son. And DHS worker falsified the report. She cleared this place for clearance to say it was a suitable home for my daughter Mm. to be placed in. It was a lie. You know, when you have a child, you're supposed to have at least two bedrooms. So that child has their own room. My daughter had a floor. DHS worker knew this. She didn't mention the floor. She lied. So your daughter was removed from you and placed with your ex who didn't even have a room for her. Absolutely. And she was sleeping on the floor. On the floor. They took her from a home where she had her own room and her own stuff. And she was had friends and everything. And they put her into an environment where she had to sleep on the floor. Because they didn't want people sleeping on their furniture that they had on loan from Rent-A-Center. So you take her from a home with furniture that was bought and paid for by her mother in her own room to subject her to this. And it was allowed to happen because he got on board with it without ever talking to me, without ever asking my side of the story. And there was a court date and he came to court and they found me unfit. I had my daughter. I was the custodial parent her whole life. I took care of her. Her father at that point owed me about $25,000 in back child support. But somehow he was seen as the better parent and they kidnapped my daughter. Now, I found this out years later. The day that it happened, the DHS social worker called me and she said she was at my house. She wanted to know where my younger son was. I said, well, he's in daycare. It was during the summer and camp hadn't started yet. She said, why did you leave your daughter with your son? You know, he's unstable. And I'm like, are you speaking of the same son that you refused to put back into placement? Are you kidding me? So she said, you need to get somebody, your mother, somebody to come down here and get your daughter. So I made frantic calls to my mother. I need you to get down there to get her because DHS is sitting in my house. DHS worker calls again. Is your mom coming? I said, yes, she's on her way. It was a new home that I hadn't been in that long. And my mother, honestly, this was before the day of GPS and, you know, telephone directions and all that. And she couldn't find my house. So the DHS worker said, well, I have no choice. I'm going to have to take her. And I begged her not to take my child. It was July 3rd, 2007. It was the day before July 4th. And she strategically planned this because the next day was the holiday and the courts would be closed. So I wouldn't be able to do anything. But I begged her not to take my daughter. But her father, do-do-do-do-do-do, came down to DHS. And I had a friend who was a social worker and she ran and picked my mother up. And she took her down to DHS, but they allowed my daughter to go with her father. And my mother, as the grandmother, the father outweighed her. I got off work from the moment that that they had called me, and I was too late. However, I got to the courts in time. Before DHS could file their petition, I beat them to it, 
and I filed my petition. So I would find out years later, having breakfast with my daughter, she was like, Mom, that was a lie. She was never in the house. She was never waiting for you. Those calls that she made were from her car. She never stepped foot in the house. Well, how did she get you, Sally? She knocked on the door. Robert was upstairs taking a shower, and he told me not to open the door, but I trusted her. She said, Sally, it's so-and-so. And I thought her to be a nice lady. And I opened the door. And when I opened the door, she grabbed me. And she threw me in her van and locked the door. I was like, wait a minute. She said she was in the house. Mom, she never stepped foot in that house. They kidnapped my child. This is crazy. How old was your daughter? She was seven. She must have been terrified. She was terrified. And my Robert threw on some clothes and ran down the steps and he was trying to beat on the windows of the van and let my sister go, let her go, let her go. And Sally's trying to get out and she's like, and she just drove off. I didn't find this out till my daughter was like 19 years old and we were having breakfast and I brought it up. She was at the house. Mom. She was never at the house. She never stepped foot in the house. She knocked on the door. I trusted her. I opened it and she grabbed me and picked me up and threw me in the van, closed the door and locked the door and I couldn't get out. They never told the courts that. Till right now, that part of the story has not been revealed publicly. They kidnapped my child and it was a fight. I got into the fight of my life to get her back. I'm speechless. And I've heard like so many of these experiences. So I just, the first thing I want to tell you is that I believe you. Thank you. Like, that I means believe, a lot. I believe all of it. And one of the reasons I believe all of it is because you're not the first person that I hear. I thank you for willing, being willing to like share to that depth. It's a testament to your own healing that you can share this way. So, like, I really acknowledge you for that. I'm sure that you had to come a really long way to even just be able to share it like that. So thank you for trusting me enough, especially for trusting yourself enough that you can share like that. Because I think it's like that amount of detail that has people really get how much we don't know. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So although it may sound like a little cold, I just want to like kind of back up your story for a few minutes with Mm -hmm. like stuff that I've heard from other parents and like that I don't just believe you because I consider you a friend now. Right. And a person who would have my back. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We've known each other for a while. I actually believe you inside of the like sociologist part of my brain. Right. (laughs) Right. It's like nothing in your story doesn't match what I've heard for the past 20 years. There was a study done in New York City around the number of children abused in care. So what your son was saying about experiencing emotional and physical abuse by the hand of people, like there have been several studies done that have confirmed that. And I'm trying to remember whether it's a quarter or a half of children in foster care having an experience of abuse. I'm sure for you as a mom, I can't even imagine how like heartbreaking that is, right? To see I was them so taken guilty. and then not taking care from someone else. I was so guilty because I only wanted what was best for him. And yeah. he didn't get that. So anyway, so there are multiple studies that back that up. 
we actually know, because every year there's an AFSCARS report that DHS publishes nationally. Mm-hmm. We know that every year, if you look at the stats of the last 10 years, there are 300 to 500 children who die in foster care. That's horrific. So we know that. And because it shows up as 0%, like that doesn't make an outrage. Like right. that hasn't created a revolution yet. Like I'm in a place where like I'm so outraged by that number every single year that I look at it. I think it's going down slightly, but still. And on other episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about what happens on the social worker side, right? Because right, right. they have their own experience of trauma and mm-hmm. overwork and two big caseloads and stuff right, like that, right? Exactly. But I'm not going to go there today because today is about you. The other thing that I want to say that I've heard many times is that the whole concept of, of you not knowing what adjudication really was the lawyer that gets assigned to you versus the lawyer you paid privately. Right. So that that lawyer that got assigned to you didn't actually explain anything to you so that you walked in blind. Yes. And probably either made statements or signed papers that had you kind of have your kid placed in in DHS's custody without knowing. I've heard that more times than I can count. And the other, the piece around like the father privilege right? Which is like this kind of twisted thing around so many fathers, like DHS has an experience of many fathers not being involved. And so then when there's a father involved, there was one mother that I talked to, which I mentioned in the book, she said they treated him like King Jesus or something. Heard that before as well. And I've also heard this concept of the housing standards shifting. Like there was really rigid standards for most parents to get their children back. They need to have like one room per child at least in their home, which is a kind of false false requirement. (laughs) Yeah, I could talk about that another time. But like the whole thing about things keep on shifting depending Mm -hmm. on who's doing paperwork and what's going on. That's also I've heard that a million times. So much so that a woman in Michigan who's created a woman's co-op like a really gorgeous co-op of women who like come together with experiences similar to yours that kind of come together and share resources. She used this like amazing analogy, which was dealing with DHS is like a Harry Potter's map. Like the map changes according to who's looking at it. That's a good analogy. Right? (laughs) It changes. Exactly. Me too. Right? It's like from the secret chamber, chamber of secrets, right? It's like depending on who's looking at the map and who's in the room at any time, like it just keeps on moving around Mm -hmm. depending on the worker, depending on the lawyer, depending Mm -hmm. on the judge, like things just keep on moving around. And every time a person changes, the whole situation changes. The other thing that I want to say is that seen more than once is like your oldest child Robert's perspective right of Mm -hmm. my mom's innocent so how bad can it be right exactly like that comes from the perspective of how we see criminal court because in criminal court you're innocent until proved guilty but in DHS you're guilty until (laughs) proven innocent (laughs) exactly there's a, a lawyer I interviewed some years ago and I hope this is like helping even you yeah. flesh out mm-hmm. your story and not me talking over you because right, your experience right. is full and amazing in and of itself. But I interviewed a lawyer some years ago. This is in New York. She was promoted as a family court judge because she was a woman. She really wanted to be a criminal court judge. But she was promoted to family court judge. 
she had to leave after a year. And this is her quote. And I remember it by heart because it like changed my life and I was so struck by it. She said, it's not that family court has a lower standard of evidence than criminal court. It's that it's not court. It's a group of middle-class people sitting around a table talking about their comfort level with generally a working-class parent's parenting abilities. I'm just going to say that again. It's a group of middle-class people, professionals, sitting around a table talking about their comfort level with a working class mother's parenting abilities. That's deep. I agree with that. So she actually left and dig this because this is what's really fascinating. She left family court. She left her position as a family court judge to become a defendant on death row. Like a defendant judge on death row. It was actually more hopeful for her to defend people who had been accused, like who had been convicted (laughs) or were trying to be convicted of a death Mm -hmm. sentence than it was to work as a family court judge. Because she could not reconcile like that it wasn't really court. The whole assumption of my mom's innocent, like what, how bad could it get? Right? Like that is a very wise perspective that your son had that's rooted in all our Hollywood movies perspectives exactly. of what court he is. Couldn't have known. And actually it's not family court, but dependency court. Cause there are also two separate kinds of court. Family court is where you go. If you lose your child to your custody, to your partner. Mm-hmm. Right. And dependency court is where you go. If you lose your child to DHS and they're two separate bodies of law. They are. Yes. And that's a whole other thing I'm not going to get into. Cause we're not focusing on the legal system today, but. It's just like a little sprinkle of like me saying to you, I believe you. And you know, I believe you like in a heart mm-hmm. to heart, I believe you. But for our listeners that could be a little bit more skeptical, like I believe you because I've heard like s- more stories than I can count like this, like more experiences like right. this than there I can count. There are countless other stories. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the way up. How did you get them back? I borrowed money from my mom and my sister, and I hired my own attorney. I did a lot of the footwork myself. We went into court. We lost the first battle because she was given to her father. And I had to have supervised visitation with my own daughter. And he allowed my mother because you could pick who would supervise the visit. He allowed my mother to be the supervising agent. I had to pick her up and take her to his apartment. I was not allowed inside his apartment. He brought my daughter outside. And he was so cruel in how he treated me. Why would you feel like you had to have supervision for me to see my daughter Because there was no proof you had ever harmed your daughter, right? None. Okay. So there's also another piece that once one child has been adjudicated, the process to have other children adjudicated is a lot easier. Yes. Right. So that's the other piece that I just wanted to add in there, that it's not unfrequent 
for a parent who has one child adjudicated to just see the others disappear, not even knowing why. And that's what they were working towards. But with my lawyer, I told him the truth about my daughter's now living conditions. In addition to her father, his wife, and a girlfriend, there was her son, his wife's adult son, who had a criminal background, who was also living in the one-bedroom apartment. Hmm. And my lawyer was able to put it in legal terms to say she's more in imminent danger in this situation than with her mother. So we went to court, and at this point, DHS had gotten what they wanted, which was to have my daughter removed from me. So they kind of backed away from the situation, and it became a custody matter between her father and I. And that judge was just like scratching her head. Why is this even before me? Why was this child taken? Her mother did nothing. She returned her back to me. So your lawyer was able to bring the evidence of how there were all these other people living in the house. Yes. And your child was actually not. So this is the other piece, right? Family court generally operates with no evidence. Yes. So once you got your own lawyer, your lawyer actually compiled the evidence to show how your daughter wasn't in a better situation than she was at home. It's a difference when you're paying somebody to represent you versus someone who was appointed to represent you. And they're getting those lawyers make like last I heard five hundred dollars. Five hundred. They get nothing. Mm-hmm. And they really don't have a vested interest in whether you get your child back or not. That's right. You know, so it was a complete difference. But I got her back. DHS was in our life. They, Even though she came back, they kept me under DHS supervision. And we finally went back to court. Again, this time it was my lawyer and DHS and the city solicitor, they called them. And the lawyer there was just like, again, scratching his head. Why did you ever take this woman's child? Why? And he was just, I don't care. Case is dismissed. (laughs) And DHS, they were stunned like, what? This was the judge? Yes. (laughs) He was just like, really? I'm dismissing this. And with that, DHS was out of my life. Hmm. And I remember that day, it was just like the tears flowed. And things, a lot of people don't believe me because DHS, they're supposed to be the good guys. If your daughter was taken, you had to have done something. Something horrible and horrific. And I'm like, That's the. No, I didn't. Hmm. I really didn't. And it, it, it's scary how. A middle-class person with no sense of any realness can decide, I don't like you, and I'm going to paint you as something you're not due to not liking you. Like, if it's nothing there, no worries. They'll create something. They'll pull in ex-people, exes, neighbors, anybody that's willing to talk against you that's going to boister their case. It's downright scary how they can build cases out of nothing. Mm -hmm. It happened to me. I would not have believed them capable, but it happened to me. Yeah. What other assumptions do you think people make about like mothers who lost their kids to foster care or to DHS? You're a bad mother. 
you were hanging with the wrong people, you didn't have a job, you didn't have a clean house, you're on drugs, mm-hmm. you're mentally ill. Is there something wrong? Mm-hmm. They painted me as I was mentally unstable, but I had a good job. I had a job I'd been on for 11 years. I was making good money. I was making probably more money than some of their social workers. I was college educated. Mm-hmm. I did not fit their mold yeah. of the unfit mother. So they had to find something to make it fit. Right. And that's part of why your, your experience is so powerful, right? Because most mothers who experience this are extremely poor, don't have the college education, right? And so they're a lot more vulnerable. I had a good job and I had the resources and I was able to get help yeah. outside of myself. Yeah. A lot of mothers, regrettably, they don't have that support system. They don't yeah. have that money. They don't have that job. It makes a difference. Oh, I'm stuck with this lawyer that didn't even bother reading the case or explaining anything. Yeah, exactly. Because I can't afford anything better. That's real. First of all, congratulations on getting them back, right? Mm -hmm. And doing whatever you had to do to be able to pay your own lawyer. So I know that in the process, you had an organization, advocacy organization that supported you, which was like Every Mother's a Working Mother Network. And you actually told some of your story on a video that's on their website. So I'd love to know, like, how did they support you? Or like, what did you learn from working with them? Every mother is a working mother. They are a valuable resource. I sing their praises. You go to their meetings, which at that time was held monthly. And they give you the floor to tell your story. And you get instant support and understanding and you have an advocate assigned to you and that person will accompany you to your DHS meetings, to your DHS hearings. They are there to give you support. It was an invaluable experience. I will always sing their praises because they believed me when my own family didn't believe me Mm. and they were there for me to come to court when my own family wasn't there for me. Um, It's a dedicated group of individuals that are fighting the cause. So every mother's a working mother. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you for what you did for me all those years ago. I never forgot it. So if you could give advice to, I don't know if there are other mothers who are dealing with what you dealt with online right now, right? But there may be. What advice would you have? Whenever you meet with DHS, always take somebody with you. Whenever the DHS worker wants to come to your home, make sure there's another adult there with you. You need another set of eyes and another set of ears. You need somebody taking notes. Keep detailed notes yourself. Keep a log, everything, date, time, who you spoke to, what happened. Be mindful of offers of help. Be really suspicious about any help that they may offer you. And try to find groups like Every Mother is a Working Mother, somebody that can can support you. Don't let it define you. That's the point. Don't let this experience define you. Say more about that. Don't let this experience define you. There's so much behind there. 
I am not the person they painted me to be. I was not unstable. I was not unfit. I kept a clean home. I kept a good job. I had a car. I had resources. My daughter was involved in the Girl Scouts. She went to summer camp. I was not this unstable person that they painted me to be. You can go through this situation and get really depressed. And at times, I really was. There's a part in the video where I talk about just grabbing her coat. I couldn't, she wasn't there. And I held the coat as if I was holding her and I cried. Allow yourself those moments, but you got to press forward. You got to keep pressing. You can't let them win. You can't. You, it's too much at stake. Your children are at stake. Your very life is at stake. Keep moving forward. Thank you for that. I mean, everything, every word that comes out of your mouth is so powerful. I just honor you for, you know, the courage and the determination that it took to get through. And again, the courage to share what you've been through, too. So thinking for a moment about, so mm -hmm. what is our collective power around this, right? right? So one of the things that I want to highlight is that in the video, there's an image of you with a binder, right? And I keep thinking about like what a crucial element that was, right? That every mother's a working mother had every mother create their own binder with their own evidence. And I remember this binder like being at least 500 pages. They used my binder as the example to make the rest of their binders. This is what I mean by you have to keep track of every court notice, every court date, everything that's happened, every time you see a psychologist, every evaluation, everything of mine. I held on to it for a while. I mean, I held on to it for many years after I got my daughter back. And one day I was finally able to release it. Hmm. And it was really an experience to say, I don't need to hold on to these notes anymore. Hmm. I can let it go. But while you're going through it, it's important that you keep those notes. You keep all this stuff together in one place. So if they say to you, well, did you ever get that doctor's appointment? Yes, I did. Did you take her to that evaluation? Yes, I did. You know, and you're able to prove that means the difference. The, the parent that's organized versus the unorganized parent, they can't do as much with. Just want to mention, like, I know there are a lot of group of parents who are organizing on Facebook. Like, mm -hmm. I've subscribed probably to at least 30 of them. There are lots wow. of ones, like, state to state throughout. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, one of the recommendations I want to make for parents is to, like, find other parents and find resources in your state by leveraging other parents. In the name of God, do not put your story on Facebook, even if you're in a protected group. Like having some parents in the survival mode of like really trying to reach out and find out, put a lot of the details of their case on Facebook and a social worker not can work idea. on Facebook. There are a lot of mandatory, and it's not just the social work, right? There are mandatory reporters who are people that by profession are like, it's their obligation to contact DHS if they have any suspicion of abuse. And you so, may not necessarily know who in your circle. Exactly 
has that yeah. right. So no. <laughs> so I would say use Facebook as an opportunity to find other parents. Yes. But do not post details about your case on Facebook. I agree. A hundred percent. Facebook is not yeah. private. And also there's a growing national network called the Parent Advocacy Network. I'll put a link on the show. Mm-hmm. So there's Rise Magazine in New York, which is a magazine by parents for parents. I think you wrote I've written about- for them. You have. I have That's written right. for them. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Rise so we can like put that out as a resource as well? They were invited to a meeting of Every Mother is a Working Mother. And I linked up with their publisher who gave me the opportunity to write my story. And I was honored to have that possibility. And I wrote my story and she edited it and she helped me to write it in a place where just the facts don't have any accusations because you can be sued, just the facts. And they published it. It was a great experience. I can access that, those articles even today. Wonderful. Find that article and put a link to the article and the video on our website. Okay, so in terms of leveraging our collective power, right? Like you mentioned, first of all, like, don't let them define you, know who mm-hmm. you are, grieve when you need to grieve and keep pushing on, right? Yes. Find networks of either advocates or parents who have gone through this before. Do not isolate yourself. Exactly. Right? Because it's yes. really easy to isolate when not even your family, that even the people close to you don't believe because... They think that if DHS got involved, something horrific happened. Why would they lie? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So basically, don't isolate yourself. No matter who doesn't believe you, find a network of people who do. Find a network of parents. And I say mothers a lot because my book focuses on mothers. But this Mm -hmm. also can happen to fathers. I also know fathers who like were very like single fathers who were really committed to their children who Mm -hmm. also lost custody. So like a shout out to fathers. Um, So if you're a parent, reach out to other parents who have been through this experience with DHS and who can support you, advise you. You were saying always have a witness. So in terms of our collective power, it's organizing. Mm -hmm. So organizing among parents, organizing around advocates. We mentioned Rise Magazine in New York, Jeanette Vega, who is training director, I think, is extremely active in New York in getting parents' voices in mm-hmm. the boardrooms of many agencies so that planning happens with a parent in the room. Right. So right. Jeanette's doing some like phenomenal work there. So shout out to Jeanette in New York. Like what we can do city by city is to have parents in more decision-making rooms, right? put them on more boards yep you need to have that parental voice absolutely because like what you know about the system from the inside people may not know from the outside Mm -hmm. right and I just want to add that if you're listening in and you have a desire to organize and you're half as outraged as I was when I started hearing parent experiences some years ago one of the things you can do is find a parent advocacy network like in your state or close to you and just offer to be one of those advocates, to be one of those witnesses and to just even just going to court 
with a parent can be such an incredible, you know, maybe half a day of your time because uh, most of the times you don't have a specific time that your case is going to be called. It may be a half a day or a day out of your week, but it's like an incredible contribution for the parent. So if you can just go to court with a parent and then take your own independent notes so that they have some notes and a witness, like that would make a huge difference. Anything else that you can think of in terms of leveraging our collective power to have things shift? You know, I believe... People that go into social work, they do so because they genuinely want to help. But when you're dealing with an agency like DHS, it's really not about helping. It's about tearing down and tearing apart. So your job becomes one of not helping, but of policing and investigating and interrogating. And kind of shift the focus away from that. If we make keeping families together as profitable as tearing them apart... That's going to go a long way. And also re-educating people, because a lot of this is going to be unlearning stuff that you've learned over generations. Because you are that middle-class person, you don't have the right to look down on somebody that you feel is lower class. Because in a blink of an eye, you could be there. Yeah. Sue, I hear you say, like, question your standards. Right. Like question whether your standards are coming from how you were raised or they're an actual standard of safety for a child. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because the way we were raised, whatever that we is, may be different from like safety for one person may look very different than safety for another. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Don't make any assumptions. mm -hmm. Question your assumptions. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, Luanda. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you uh, so much. This was really powerful. We've talked about this experience several times, and each time there's always something enriching that I discover. Thank you for, again, being able to share the way you have. And, you know, there's a reason why I've thanked you about like 10 times already is like I know how many mothers I asked to be on here, right? Uh And I know for how many it's a challenge right it's Mm -hmm. a challenge to come out and tell their story right especially when you've lived that experience no one believed you when you're in the middle of it right even if you're out on the other end now so do you have any final thoughts before we close it's worthwhile work um i would love to see all of the systems that work together kind of be revamped like really dismantle the system and just start over And it starts with acknowledging that the current system in place, it doesn't work. It does more harm than good. And maybe trying to like focus on that. Like how can we not put a Band-Aid on it, but really just tear down the whole system and rebuild it? I would love to see that happen. Yeah, question the recipe is one of the things I like to say, (laughs) right? Right. That like the recipe of... uh... I call it system abuse. Really, like, let's change the backbone of it, not the little tweaks. And but exactly. like, what would it take to actually shift the whole recipe? Exactly. Beautiful. Could you share how people can get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Like, how can people reach you? Um, the best way is through email, which I check constantly. And my email address is easy to remember. Strawberries. I love at yahoo.com. Can you say that one more time? Strawberries I love at yahoo.com. 
So Lawanda, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for being with us today. I'm here with Lawanda Connolly, who's a dear friend and a mother who was able to get her children back from DHS after some challenges and interactions with them. And I'm Dr. Rita Fierro, and I'm your host. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.